0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 8 and 9, from H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. And now, chapter 8. Naturally, Danforth and I studied with a special interest and a peculiarly personal sense of awe everything pertaining to the immediate district in which we were. Of this local material there was naturally of vast abundance, AND ON THE TANGLED GROUND LEVEL OF THE CITY WE WERE LUCKY ENOUGH TO FIND A HOUSE OF VERY LATE DATE WHOSE WALLS, THOUGH SOMEWHAT DAMAGED BY A NEIGHBORING rift, CONTAINED SCULPTURES OF DECADENT WORKMANSHIP CARRYING THE STORY OF THE REGION MUCH BEYOND THE PERIOD OF THE Pliocene MAP WHENCE WE DERIVED OUR LAST GENERAL GLIMPSE OF THE PRE-HUMAN WORLD. THIS WAS THE LAST PLACE WE EXAMINED IN DETAIL, SINCE WHAT WE FOUND THERE GAVE US FRESH IMMEDIATE OBJECTIVE. "'Certainly we were in one of the strangest, weirdest, and most terrible of all the corners "'of Earth's globe. "'Of all existing lands, it was infinitely the most ancient. "'The conviction grew upon us that this hideous upland must indeed be the fabled nightmare "'plateau of Leng, which even the mad author of the Necronomicon was reluctant to discuss. "'The great mountain chain was tremendously long.' starting as a low range at Lutpoid Land on the east coast of Weddell Sea, and virtually crossing the entire continent. That really high part stretched in a mighty arc from about latitude 82 east, longitude 60, to latitude 70 degrees, east longitude 115 degrees, with its concave side toward our camp, and its seaward end in the region of that long, ice-locked coast whose hills were glimpsed by Wilkes and Mawson at the Antarctic Circle. Yet even more monstrous exaggerations of nature seem disturbingly close at hand. I have said that these peaks are higher than the Himalayas, but the sculptures forbid me to say that they are Earth's highest. That grim honor is beyond doubt reserved for something which half the sculptures hesitated to record at all, whilst others approached it with obvious repugnance and trepidation. It seems that there was one part of the ancient land, the first part that ever rose from the waters after the earth had flung off the moon and the old ones had seeped down from the stars, which had come to be shunned as vaguely and namelessly evil. Cities built there had crumbled before their time and had been found suddenly deserted. Then, when the first great earth-buckling had convulsed the region in the Comanchean Age, a frightful line of peaks had shot suddenly up amidst the most appalling din and chaos and earth had received her loftiest and most terrible mountains. If the scale of the carvings was correct, these abhorred things must have been much over forty thousand feet high, radically vaster than even the shocking mountains of madness we had crossed. Some of the old ones, in the decadent days, had made strange prayers to those mountains, but none ever went near them or dared to guess what lay beyond. No human eye had ever seen them, and as I studied the emotions conveyed in the carvings, I prayed that none ever might. There are protecting hills along the coast beyond them, Queen Mary and Kaiser Wilhelm lands, and I thank heaven no one has been able to land and climb those hills. I am not as skeptical about old tales and fears as I used to be, and I do not laugh now at the pre-human sculptor's notion that lightning paused meaningfully now and then at each of the brooding crests, and that an unexplained glow shone from one of those terrible pinnacles all through the long polar night. There may be a very real and very monstrous meaning in the old, naconic whispers about Kadath in the cold waste, but the terrain close at hand was hardly less strange, even if less namelessly accursed. Soon after the founding of the city, the great mountain range became the seat of the principal temples, and many carvings showed what grotesque and fantastic towers had pierced the sky, where now we saw only the curiously clinging cubes and ramparts. In the course of ages the caves had appeared— and had been shaped into adjuncts of the temples. According to certain carvings, the denizens of that city had themselves known the clutch of oppressive terror, for there was a somber and recurrent type of scene in which the old ones were shown in the act of recoiling affrightedly from some object, never allowed to appear in the design, found in the great river, and indicated as having been washed down through waving, vine-draped, cycad forests from those horrible westward mountains. It was only in the one late-built house with the decadent carvings that we obtained any foreshadowing of the final calamity leading to the city's desertion. Undoubtedly there must have been many sculptures of the same age elsewhere, even allowing for the slackened energies and aspirations of a stressful and uncertain period. But this was the first and only set we directly encountered. We meant to look farther on, but as I've said, immediate conditions dictated another present objective. In the end it seems to have been the neighboring abyss which received the greatest colonization this was partly due no doubt to the traditional sacredness of this special region but it may have been more conclusively determined by the opportunities it gave for continuing the use of the great temples on the honeycombed mountains and for retaining the vast land city as a place of summer residence and base of communication with various mines. the linkage of old and new abodes was made more effective by means of several gradings and improvements along the connecting routes "'including the chiseling of numerous direct tunnels "'from the ancient metropolis to the black abyss, "'sharply down-pointing tunnels "'whose mouths we carefully drew, "'according to our most thoughtful estimates, "'on the guide map we were compiling. "'It was obvious that at least two of these tunnels "'lay within a reasonable exploring distance "'of where we were, "'both being on the mountainward edge of the city, "'one less than a quarter of a mile "'toward the ancient river course, "'and the other perhaps twice that distance "'in the opposite direction.' The abyss, it seems, had shelving shores of dry land at certain places, but the old ones built their new city underwater, no doubt because of its greater certainty of uniform warmth. The depth of the hidden sea appears to have been very great, so that the Earth's internal heat could ensure its habitability for an indefinite period. The beings seem to have had no trouble in adapting themselves to part time, and eventually, of course, whole time, residence underwater, since they never allowed their gill systems to atrophy. There were many sculptures which showed how they had always frequently visited their submarine kinsfolk elsewhere, and how they had habitually bathed on the deep bottom of their great river. The darkness of inner earth could likewise have been no deterrent to a race accustomed to long Antarctic nights. They told of the building of the new city in the cavern sea. The old ones had gone about it scientifically, quarrying insoluble rocks from the heart of the honeycombed mountains, and employing expert workers from the nearest submarine city to perform the construction according to the best methods. These workers brought with them all that was necessary to establish the new venture. shogoth tissue, from which to breed stone lifters, and subsequent beasts of burden for the cavern city, and other protoplasmic matter to mold into phosphorescent organisms for lighting purposes. At last, a mighty metropolis rose on the bottom of that Stygian Sea, its architecture much like that of the city above, and its workmanship displaying relatively little decadence because of the precise mathematical element inherent in building operations. The newly bred shogoths grew to enormous size and singular intelligence, and were represented as taking and executing orders with marvelous quickness. They seemed to converse with the old ones by mimicking their voices, a sort of musical piping over a wide range, if poor Lake's dissection had indicated a right. And to work more from spoken commands "'than from hypnotic suggestions, as in earlier times. "'They were, however, kept in admirable control. "'The phosphorescent organisms supplied light with vast effectiveness, "'and doubtless atoned for the loss of familiar polar auroras "'of the outer world night. "'The decadent cartouches and dados telling this story were, "'as I have said, the latest we could find in our limited search. "'They left us with a picture of the old ones "'shuttling back and forth betwixt the land city and summer,' and the sea-cavern city in winter, and sometimes trading with the sea-bottom cities off the Antarctic coast. By this time the ultimate doom of the land city must have been recognized, for the sculpture showed many signs of the cold's malign encroachments. Vegetation was declining, and the terrible snows of the winter no longer melted completely, even in midsummer. The saurian livestock were nearly all dead, and the mammals were standing at none too well. To keep on with the work of the upper world, it had become necessary to adapt some of the amorphous and curiously cold-resistant shogoths to land life, a thing the old ones had formerly been reluctant to do. The great river was now lifeless, and the upper sea had lost most of its denizens except the seals and the whales. All the birds had flown away, save only the great, grotesque penguins. What had happened afterward we could only guess. How long had the new sea-cavern city survived? Was it still down there, a stony corpse in eternal blackness? Had the subterranean waters frozen at last? To what fate had the ocean bottom cities of the outer world been delivered? Had any of the old ones shifted north ahead of the creeping ice-cap? Existing geology shows no trace of their presence. Had the frightful Mygo been still a menace in the outer land world of the north? Could one be sure of what might or might not linger, even to this day, "'in the lightless and unplumbed abysses "'of Earth's deepest waters. "'Those things had seemingly been able "'to withstand any amount of pressure, "'and men of the sea have fished up "'curious objects at times. "'And has the killer whale theory "'really explained the savage and mysterious scars "'on Antarctic seals, "'noticed a generation ago by Borch "'We could not help thinking about those specimens, "'especially about the eight perfect ones "'that were missing from Lake's hideously ravaged camp.' "'There was something abnormal about that whole business, "'the strange things we had tried so hard to lay to somebody's madness, "'those frightful graves, "'the amount and nature of the missing material, "'Gedney, the unearthly toughness of those archaic monstrosities, "'and the queer vital freaks the sculptures now showed the race to have. "'Danforth and I had seen a good deal in the last few hours "'and were prepared to believe and keep silent "'about many appalling and incredible secrets of primal nature.' We'll return with chapter nine, right after these sponsor messages. And now chapter nine. I have said that our study of the decadent sculptures brought about a change in our immediate objective. This, of course, had to do with the chiseled avenues to the black inner world, of whose existence we had not known before, but which we were now eager to find and traverse. From the evident scale of the carvings, we deduced that a steeply descending walk of about a mile, through either of the neighboring tunnels, "'would bring us to the brink of the dizzy, sunless cliffs about the great abyss, "'down whose side's paths, improved by the old ones, "'led to the rocky shore of the hidden and nighted ocean. "'To behold this fabulous gulf in stark reality "'was a lure which seemed impossible of resistance once we knew of the thing. "'Yet we realized that we must begin the quest at once "'if we expected to include it in our present trip. "'It was now eight p.m., "'and we did not have enough battery replacements "'to let our torches burn on forever.' We had done so much studying and copying below the glacial level that our battery supply had had at least five hours of nearly continuous use, and despite the special dry-cell formula, would obviously be good for only about four more. Though by keeping one torch unused, except for especially interesting or difficult places, we might manage to eke out a safe margin beyond that. It would not do to be without a light in these Cyclopean catacombs. Hence, in order to make the abyss trip, "'we must give up all further mural deciphering. "'Of course we intended to revisit the place for days "'and perhaps weeks of intensive study and photography. "'Curiosity having long ago got the better of horror. "'But just now we must hasten. "'As we threaded our dim way through the labyrinth "'with the aid of map and compass, "'traversing rooms and corridors "'in every stage of ruin or preservation, "'clambering up ramps, crossing upper floors and bridges, "'and clambering down again.' "'encountering choked doorways and piles of debris, "'hastening now and then along finely preserved "'and uncannily immaculate stretches, "'taking false leads, and retracing our way, "'in such cases removing the blind paper trail we had left, "'and once in a while striking the bottom of an open shaft "'through which daylight poured or trickled down. "'We were repeatedly tantalized by the sculptured walls "'along our route. "'Many must have told tales of immense historical importance, "'and only the prospect of later visits "'reconciled us to the need of passing them by. "'As it was, we slowed down once in a while "'and turned on our second torch. "'If we had had more film, "'we would certainly have paused briefly "'to photograph certain bas-reliefs, "'but time-consuming hand-copying "'was clearly out of the question. "'Shortly before 8.30 p.m., "'Danforth's keen young nostrils "'gave us the first hint of something unusual. "'If we had had a dog with us, "'I suppose we would have been warned before.' At first we could not precisely say what was wrong with the formerly crystal-pure air, but after a few seconds our memories reacted only too definitely. Let me try to state the thing without flinching. There was an odor, and that odor was vaguely, subtly, and unmistakably akin to what had nauseated us upon opening the insane grave of the horror poor Lake had dissected. Of course the revelation was not as clearly cut at the time as it sounds now. There were several conceivable explanations— and we did a good deal of indecisive whispering. Most important of all, we did not retreat without further investigation, for having come this far, we were loath to be balked by anything short of a certain disaster. Anyway, what we must have suspected was altogether too wild to believe. Such things did not happen in any normal world. It was probably sheer irrational instinct which made us dim our single torch—' "'tempted no longer by the decadent and sinister sculptures "'that leered menacingly from the oppressive walls, "'and which softened our progress to a cautious tiptoeing and crawling "'over the increasingly littered floor and heaps of debris. "'Danforth's eyes as well as nose proved better than mine, "'for it was likewise he who first noticed the queer aspect of the debris "'after we had passed many half-choked arches, "'leading to chambers and corridors on the ground level.' It did not look quite as it ought after countless thousands of years of desertion, and when we cautiously turned on more light, we saw that a kind of swath seemed to have been lately tracked through it. The irregular nature of the litter precluded any definite marks, but in the smoother places there were suggestions of the dragging of heavy objects. Once we thought there was a hint of parallel tracks, as if of runners. That was what made us pause again. It was during that pause that we caught, simultaneously this time. The other odor ahead, paradoxically, it was both the less frightful and more frightful odor—less frightful intrinsically, but infinitely appalling in this place under the known circumstances, unless of course Gedney, for the odor was the plain and familiar one of common petrol, everyday gasoline. Our motivation after that is something I will leave to psychologists. We knew now that some terrible extension of the camp horrors must have crawled into this nighted burial-place of the eons, hence could not doubt any longer the existence of nameless conditions, present or at least recent just ahead. Yet in the end, we did let sheer burning curiosity, or anxiety, or auto-hypnotism, or vague thoughts of responsibility toward Gedney, or what not, drive us on, Danforth whispered again of the print he thought he had seen at the alley turning in the ruins above, and of the faint musical piping, potentially of tremendous significance in the light of Lake's dissection report, despite its close resemblance to the cave-mouth echoes of the windy peaks, which he thought he had shortly afterward half-heard from unknown depths below. I, in my turn, whispered of how the camp was left, of what had disappeared, and of how the madness of a lone survivor might have conceived the inconceivable." a wild trip across the monstrous mountains, and a descent into the unknown, primal masonry. But we could not convince each other, or even ourselves, of anything definite. We had turned off all light as we stood still, and vaguely noticed that a trace of deeply filtered upper day kept the blackness from being absolute. Having automatically begun to move ahead, we guided ourselves by occasional flashes from our torch. The disturbed debris formed an impression we could not shake off, And the smell of gasoline grew stronger. More and more ruin met our eyes and hampered our feet until very soon we saw that the forward way was about to cease. We had been all too correct in our pessimistic guess about that rift glimpsed from the air. Our tunnel quest was a blind one, and we were not even going to be able to reach the basement out of which the abyssward aperture opened. The torch, flashing over the grotesquely carved walls of the blocked corridor in which we stood, showed several doorways in various states of obstruction, and from one of them the gasoline odour quite submerging that other hint of odour came with a special distinctness. As we looked more steadily, we saw that beyond a doubt there had been a slight and recent clearing-away of debris from that particular opening. Whatever the lurking horror might be, we believed the direct avenue toward it was now plainly manifest." I do not think anyone will wonder that we waited an appreciable time before making any further motion. And yet, when we did venture inside that black arch, our first impression was one of anti-climax. For amidst the littered expanse of that sculptured crypt, a perfect cube with sides of about twenty feet, there remained no recent object of instantly discernible size, so that we looked instinctively, though in vain, for a further doorway. In another moment, however, Danforth's sharp vision had described a place where the floor debris had been disturbed, and we turned on both torches full strength, though what we saw in that light was actually simple and trifling. I am nonetheless reluctant to tell of it because of what it implied. It was a rough leveling of the debris, upon which several small objects lay carelessly scattered, and at one corner of which a considerable amount of gasoline must have been spilled lately enough to leave a strong odor even at this extreme super-plateau altitude. In other words, it could not be other than a sort of camp, a camp made by questing beings who, like us, had been turned back by the unexpectedly choked way to the abyss. Let me be plain. The scattered objects were, so far as substance was concerned, all from Lake's camp, and consisted of tin cans as queerly opened as those we had seen at that ravaged place. Many spent matches, three illustrated books more or less curiously smudged, an empty ink bottle with its pictorial and instructional carton, a broken fountain pen, some oddly snipped fragments of fur and tent cloth, a used electric battery with circular of directions, a folder that came with our type of tent heater, and a sprinkling of crumpled papers. It was all bad enough, but when we smoothed out the papers and looked at what was on them, we felt we had come to the worst. We had found certain inexplicably blotted papers at the camp which might have prepared us, "'yet the effect of the sight down there "'in the prehuman vaults of a nightmare city "'was almost too much to bear. "'A mad Gedney might have made the groups of dots "'in imitation of those found on the greenish soapstones, "'just as the dots on those insane five-pointed grave-mounds "'might have been made, "'and he might conceivably have prepared rough, hasty sketches, "'varying in their accuracy or lack of it, "'which outlined the neighboring parts of the city "'and traced away from a circularly represented place "'outside our previous route.' a place we identified as a great cylindrical tower in the carvings, and as a vast circular gulf glimpsed in our aerial survey, to the present five-pointed structure and the tunnel-mouth therein. He might, I repeat, have prepared such sketches, for those before us were quite obviously compiled, as our own had been, from late sculptures somewhere in the glacial labyrinth, though not from the ones we had seen and used. But what the art-blind bungler could never have done was to execute those sketches in a strange and assured technique, perhaps superior, despite haste and carelessness, to any of the decadent carvings from which they were taken, the characteristic and unmistakable technique of the old ones themselves, in the dead city's heyday. There are those who will say that Danforth and I were utterly mad not to flee for our lives after that, since our conclusions were now, notwithstanding their wildness, completely fixed." and of a nature I need not even mention to those who have read my account as far as this. Perhaps we were mad, for have I not said those horrible peaks were mountains of madness? But I think I can detect something of the same spirit, albeit in a less extreme form, in the men who stalk deadly beasts through African jungles to photograph them or study their habits. Half paralyzed with terror, though we were, there was nevertheless fanned within us a blazing flame of awe and curiosity, which triumphed in the end." OF COURSE WE DID NOT MEAN TO FACE THAT, OR THOSE, WHICH WE KNEW HAD BEEN THERE, BUT WE FELT THAT THEY MUST BE GONE BY NOW. THEY WOULD BY THIS TIME HAVE FOUND THE OTHER NEIGHBORING ENTRANCE TO THE ABYSS, AND HAVE PASSED WITHIN, TO WHATEVER NIGHT-BLACK FRAGMENTS OF THE PAST MIGHT AWAIT THEM IN THE ULTIMATE GULF, THE ULTIMATE GULF THEY HAD NEVER SEEN. OR IF THAT ENTRANCE, TOO, WAS BLOCKED, THEY WOULD HAVE GONE ON TO THE NORTH SEEKING ANOTHER. THEY WERE, WE REMEMBERED, PARTLY INDEPENDENT OF LIGHT. LOOKING BACK TO THAT MOMENT, I can scarcely recall just what precise form our new emotions took, just what change of immediate objective it was that so sharpened our sense of expectancy. We certainly did not mean to face what we feared. Yet I will not deny that we may have had a lurking, unconscious wish to spy certain things from some hidden vantage point. Probably we had not given up our zeal to glimpse the abyss itself, though there was interposed a new goal in the form of the great circular place shown on the crumpled sketches we had found.' "'we had at once recognized it as a monstrous cylindrical tower "'figuring in the very earliest carvings, "'but appearing only as a prodigious round aperture from above. "'Something about the impressiveness of its rendering, "'even in these hasty diagrams, "'made us think that its subglacial levels "'must still form a feature of peculiar importance. "'Perhaps it embodied architectural marvels "'as yet unencountered by us. "'It was certainly of incredible age "'according to the sculptures in which it figured, "'being indeed among the first things built in the city.' Its carvings, if preserved, could not but be highly significant. Moreover, it might form a good present link with the upper world, a shorter route than the one we were so carefully blazing, and probably that by which those others had descended. At any rate, the thing we did was to study the terrible sketches, which quite perfectly confirmed our own, and start back over the indicated course to the circular place, the course which our nameless predecessors must have traversed twice before us. "'the other neighboring gate to the abyss "'would lie beyond that. "'I need not speak of our journey, "'during which we continued to leave "'an economical trail of paper, "'for it was precisely the same in kind "'as that by which we had reached the cul-de-sac, "'except that it tended to adhere "'more closely to the ground level, "'and even descend to basement corridors. "'Every now and then we would trace "'certain disturbing marks in the debris "'or litter underfoot, "'and after we had passed outside "'the radius of the gasoline scent, we were again faintly conscious, spasmodically, of that more hideous and more persistent scent. After the way it branched from our former course, we sometimes gave the rays of our single torch a furtive sweep along the walls, noting in almost every case the well-nigh omnipresent sculptures, which indeed seemed to have formed a main aesthetic outlet for the old ones. We now entered an open area where we could see mighty stone corbets and pillars here and there, but what we saw seemed inadequate to the function performed. The thing was excellently preserved up to the present top of the tower, a highly remarkable circumstance in view of its exposure, and its shelter had done much to protect the bizarre and disturbing cosmic sculptures on the walls. As we stepped out into the awesome half-daylight of this monstrous cylinder bottom, fifty million years old, and without doubt the most primarily ancient structure ever to meet our eyes, "'we saw that the ramp-traversed sides stretched dizzily up to a height of fully sixty feet. "'This, we recalled from our aerial survey, meant an outside glaciation of some forty feet, "'since the yawning gulf we had seen from the plain "'had been at the top of an approximately twenty-foot mound of crumbled masonry, "'somewhat sheltered for three-fourths of its circumference "'by the massive curving walls of a line of higher ruins. "'It took us only a moment to conclude that this was indeed the route "'by which those others had descended.' and that this would be the logical route for our own ascent, despite the long trail of paper we had left elsewhere. The tower's mouth was no farther from the foothills and our waiting plain than was the great terraced building we had entered, and any further subglacial exploration we might make on this trip would lie in this general region. Oddly, we were still thinking about possible later trips, even after all we'd seen and guessed. Then, as we picked our way cautiously over the debris of the great floor, "'there came a sight which for the time excluded all other matters. "'It was the neatly huddled array of three sledges "'in that farther angle of the ramp's lower and outward projecting course "'which had hitherto been screened from our view. "'There they were, the three sledges missing from Lake's camp, "'shaken by a hard usage which must have included forcible dragging "'along great reaches of snowless masonry and debris, "'as well as much hand portage over utterly unnavigable places.' They were carefully and intelligently packed and strapped, and contained things memorably familiar enough. The gasoline stove, fuel cans, instrument cases, provision tins, tarpaulins obviously bulging with books, and some bulging with less obvious contents. Everything derived from Lake's equipment. After what we had found in that other room, we were in a measure prepared for this encounter. The really great shock came when we stepped over and undid one tarpaulin whose outlines had peculiarly disquieted us. It seems that others as well as Lake had been interested in collecting typical specimens, for there were two here, both stiffly frozen, perfectly preserved, patched with adhesive plaster where some wounds around the neck had occurred, and wrapped with care to prevent further damage. They were the bodies of young Gedney and the missing dog. Join us next week Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for Chapters 10 and 11 as we near the dramatic end of At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. We do appreciate reviews very much. And if you're enjoying our story, please do take a moment, especially you Apple and send us a kind review. Thank you. We'll be back next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.